Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, John is joined by Paul Johnson, who sold his company, Lemonade Health, in 2021 to 23andMe for $400 million. But before I get there, as you'll hear from today's episode, there are a lot of definitions that you might not be familiar with, such as vesting, hurdle rate, convertible note, cliff, and more. So I thought it'd be helpful. I've added all of these definitions over in our show notes page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. Also, just a quick reminder, if you're not subscribed to this podcast, hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to today's show. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Paul, who, as I mentioned, founded Lemonade Health, which was one of the first digital healthcare platforms offering virtual medical consultations and prescription services online. Now, as you're listening to today's episode, there's a few things I want you to look out for. The first is how to establish a vesting schedule with a cliff provision when allocating company shares to safeguard your interests. How to use a convertible note as a financing tool for your company. How to strategically position your business to attract potential acquirers. How to negotiate an earnout to ensure it's not solely dependent on reaching specific milestones. How to assess stock liquidity during the business acquisition process. And how to take time to celebrate your accomplishments with your team. Plus so much more. Here to share with you his full story is Paul Johnson. Enjoy. Paul Johnson, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. John, thank you so much for having me on. Tell me the origin story of this company, Lemonade. So Lemonade Health was one of the first direct-to-consumer digital healthcare providers in the US, um, offering doctor visits on mobile phones and via websites for very specific clinical conditions. So the the driver behind that is my co-founder and I believed that there is a new version of healthcare where technology can play an important role in helping the clinician make better quality clinical decisions more efficiently and create a great patient experience at the same time. So, so what kind of medical condition would be ideal? Like what would I be suffering with? Medical conditions that tend to work well are those that can be protocolized or where there's algorithms that can take structured data that patients are self-reporting and help to digest that and present recommendations to the clinicians. So uh, the very first clinical service we offered was helping patients in California get access to birth control pills Hmm. via a mobile app without having to see a doctor in person. I think it was the first app in the US to allow patients to do that. And because the uh, medical decision making can be articulated within an algorithm, we were able to build a great consumer experience around it. And so you mentioned a co-founder. Describe that relationship. Did you kind of come out of school together or what was that like? So interestingly, in a role that I was doing previously before moving to the US and the UK, I was running the digital teams at Lloyd's Pharmacy. Lloyd's Pharmacy is one of the drugstore chains in the UK, the largest community drugstore chain. And I was on the uh, acquiring side of a business called Dr. Tom. Dr. Tom was one of Europe's first telehealth companies and was set up by Ian Van Every and Tom Van Every. 
and was named Dr. Tom. And Lloyd's Pharmacy was in the process of acquiring that business. So I was on the acquiring side and Ian was leading on the selling side. And um, Ian and I then co-founded Lemonade together about nine years ago. Wow. So many questions there. It's surprising to have two people on the opposite side of the negotiation even speak to each other after, let alone partner <laughs> together. How did you keep that relationship so positive during the process of uh, negotiating? <laughs> well, uh, mostly we were spending our time figuring out how to really make Dr. Thomas success after it had become acquired. So we, so much of our interactions was on that and were, was, was there. And I think we both, we, we both shared a real excitement in terms of the opportunity of building digital healthcare experiences, combining it with medication where appropriate. And, and, and that's... And sort of cut you off. How did you guys divvy up the equity? I mean, did you each kick in cash? Did you someone do sweat equity and the other do cash? Like, how was that formulated between you and and Ian? Uh, a combination of both. So um, we we both distributed the equity as as sort of a founding team, and and then also those that were able to put some money in. Early on, uh, we also we were also obviously re rewarded as part of that. So, um, and that was something we spent a lot of time talking about. And I think in hindsight, you always think more and more on it. And it, I think it's a difficult. Uh, we found it a difficult um, thing to go through because it's hard to predict. Uh, we found it hard to predict for the following eight years who's going to be providing uh, what to the business and contributing uh, what elements. But um, uh, we were uh, we were able to split it in that way. How would you do it differently if you, in with the benefit of hindsight? Because I think while you think about that, I'll give you a bit of context. A lot of people listening to this would be in a partnership, thinking about a partnership. Uh, and the natural inclination is like, you know, three musketeers, we're all going to do this together, split it a third, a third, a third, and we're all in. But then life happens, right? Somebody gets married, they go off and do something else, or, you know, they want to take their money out. Someone wants to grow another one, wants a lifestyle business. And like, it becomes a problem when people's lives change. And I'm just curious to know, I'm assuming over eight, nine years with you and Ian, like stuff must have come up. Was there like, what can we learn from your experience? What, what would you do differently if you could structure it again? Yeah, I agree. I think life changes. And I also think, you know, the roles that you play perhaps evolve as well as the business evolves and the business requires different skill sets at different stages. So I think what I would do differently is I would um, have a be sure to have an extended vesting period to give flexibility to make changes as as necessary. And, and we did that uh, at Lemonade to an extent, but I think I would I would look to to, to go with an even longer vesting period, just so so that you know two or three years in, if things have changed or evolved. Um, then, then you're you're able to sort of course correct during during that process. Can you explain uh, what you mean by vesting uh, for folks who maybe haven't heard that term before? What what exactly do you mean what, by extending the vesting period, and how would that have helped? Sure. So, so I think what we did, and I think what is largely common is is when you're granting shares both to employees, whether as share options or, or another structure, or in in founding stock as, as we did, I think it's common to have what's called a vesting period associated with that. And I think that normally includes a cliff, which is typically one year, meaning that if someone left within that one year period, 
they don't receive any of the shares at all. The shares can be um, taken back by the issuing company. And then after that cliff period, the shares are typically vested over a period of a number of additional years, um, whether that's two years, three years, four years, or, you know, I think if I did, did it again, I might look for a five-year vesting period. Um, and those shares are then granted and, and, and um, vested often sort of quarterly, either monthly or quarterly, so that if someone did leave during that period, the number of shares that they got would be you know, pro rata based, assuming they've gone past their cliff, pro rata based on where they ended up. And the remaining shares can then be reissued or um, redistributed, or, or you can have that conversation about the shares that someone hasn't vested into yet. If, as you pointed out, John, perhaps life has changed or, or the roles are shifting around, so you could reallocate some of that, some of yeah. those uh, yeah. invested shares. And how is vesting handled when the decision to leave is not that of the employee? In other words, you have to fire an employee. Is the vesting different? Was the vesting different in your case? Uh, or it, was it basically treated the same way, whether they left on their own volition or they were asked to leave? The vesting schedule was the vesting schedule. I think it can depend. I think that's something that can be negotiated. I, I think there's there's different triggers that could perhaps accelerate vesting or or not. And I and I think indeed another question is what happens if someone is vesting into shares and then a company is acquired? Does, sure. does that mean the vesting is accelerated or does the, the the employee or founder get ownership up until that vesting period? So I think that can vary. Um, we from our perspective, fortunately, we um, were able to recruit a great team and, and didn't encounter that situation, um, at least not too often. So, um, but, but I think it can vary. Excellent. It's, I want to go back to the business because the business model itself is, was cool. And this was a time when, you know, eight or nine years ago, I guess, more like 10, 11 years ago now, if I'm doing my back timing, telehealth, telehealth and telemedicine was really hitting its stride. It had been around, as I understand, for a period, but back 10 years ago, it was really becoming uh, a significant way that, that uh, medicine was delivered. But at the same time, I think of all these ideas that involve huge ideas, like delivering healthcare over the phone, like it's, it just seems like such a massive idea. In particular, with governments involved, I know you're originally from the UK, as am I, and obviously the NHS, like the, the National Health Service in the UK, is just this giant behemoth uh, that controls everything. Here in Canada, we have socialized medicine as well. I just think it just overwhelms my brain to think of how you would actually go about entering a market like that when you've got all these these giant kind of constituencies that you've got to somehow negotiate with and stick handle it around. Like, what were you thinking to get into this business? Like, was, <laughs> were, you, were you crazy? Tell me, like, why did you think you could sort of crack this nut? <laughs> um, perhaps I was crazy. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It seems like it seems too big of a problem yeah. to figure out where to start. Where on earth do you start? I think for me, I had a I had a personal driver. My um, my father had a had a health um, concern, or, or uh, uh, he was um, uh, accidentally diagnosed with cancer. He was um, oh, the wow. ordering clinician ticked the wrong box, checked the wrong box on a paper form, paper clipboard form, and accidentally tested for something that showed that my father had cancer, which. Um, 
was great because um, they were able to treat it and he's fully recovered and um, uh, still alive and living a fantastic life. Um, but that really made me think healthcare shouldn't be left to chance and we shouldn't be ordering lab tests by ticking boxes on paper forms anymore. That, that just should not be okay. Like we don't do that in other industries and this is healthcare, which is truly life or death. So there has to be a better way. We have to be able to use technology for good in healthcare. And, and I really felt strongly about that. And I know my co-founder Ian really did as well. So um, I think the way that we thought about the big, big opportunity or the big, big problem that we were trying to address was really how can we break it down? And the model that, that, that I mentioned really focusing on specific clinical use cases allowed us to do that, I think in a way that that made the challenge more digestible. So really focusing initially on that one area of clinical care and how are we going to build that and how are we going to build that out and create a great consumer experience, a great patient experience around it, allowed us to address what is a, a gigantic challenge, I think. It reminds me a little bit of the launch of Uber. Like I think from what I've read, the founders had the, the kind of big idea of grocery delivery and cars all around the world. But in the beginning, it was like just black limousines in San Francisco. Like it was yeah. a very, very, very tiny sort of idea. There was a lot sitting behind it that they wanted to launch. But at the very beginning, it was like geographically limited and a certain kind of car, a certain kind of traveler to get traction. It sounds like in your case, it was similar. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what we experienced then was this sort of dilemma between do we just build for the very specific use case, small bite-sized use case we're addressing now, or do we build things in knowing about the big opportunities that we're looking to expand into? And where we always tended to lean was let's just build for what we need right now, hmm. and then we'll worry about those other issues down the line. And I think that largely served us well. Um, at certain points in the future, we we would sort of find ourselves saying, oh, I wish three years ago we'd built this into it or, or planned for this in advance. But um, I think overall, in hindsight, I'm glad that we tended to focus on building the specific small use case because you can sort of go down a rabbit hole of trying to build for things that may or may not become in the future, if, if not. And and how quickly did it gain traction in the marketplace? Uh, maybe just walk us through the first phase of your growth before you raised a significant amount of capital. Like, what was that first kind of tranche of growth like? I when I think back on eight or nine years we spent building Lemonade, I definitely think about it as a roller coaster ride, and hmm. I. I think the, the very early days, no exception to that. I, I think it took us two years to get our first 50 patients. We have a, a, a photo that I, that I fondly have saved on my phone where we have a whiteboard and one of our first um, colleagues had written 50 and put stars around it. And um, that was to celebrate our, our 50th patient. And uh, I think that took us about two years to get to that point. It was we were doing something new. No one had built an app to get access to healthcare for specific conditions in this way before. We we were having to juggle how to build that from a technical perspective, how to make that work from a medical and clinical perspective, make sure we were abiding by the regulations that were 
complicated because they were written at a point when smartphones didn't exist. And we were now trying to use smartphones to provide healthcare. And when combining all of those things, it was really very difficult. And uh, we we certainly, you know, went around in circles trying to figure out how to how to make how to make that happen. But the first two years for us were, um, you know, it you know it looks it sounds like a long time two years to to get to fifty patients, and I suppose it is a long time. And and in hindsight, I wish there was ways we could accelerate it. But when you were in the moment, we were trying to go as fast as we possibly could. What did you end up with in terms of number of patients when you sold? Um, I think we we had millions of patient interactions when we became part of 23 in uh, November 2021. So um, many more than the 50 patients that um, <laughs> that we had up to the first couple of years. But it's nice to hear, I think, from the standpoint of 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 other people who are starting a business, maybe feeling a little bit frustrated by the progress that it took you two years just to get. Like if you plotted it on a graph, it would be like hardly negligible from the yeah. the x-axis. It would still be hugging the line in the first two years, right? That fifty patients was is very modest progress, but it obviously became a, a huge success story. What was the business model? Like who paid whom for what? So our original plan was, and I think this speaks to the one of numerous pivots that, that we made. Our original plan was to build this technology and sell it into the healthcare system. So this technology concept we had where patients could complete certain questions, the technology could help digest those questions, present recommendations to clinicians, and clinicians could make um, diagnosis. And so the doctors would pay. And, and so, so the healthcare system or the doctors would pay, exactly. Yeah. Um, what we found was that was that was very a very tough sales cycle. It was a very tough tough thing to sell ten years ago. This idea that technology could start to help start to change doctor workflows. So we then decided to turn it into a direct consumer model where the patients would be paying. One of the real benefits of using technology in healthcare is that you can reduce the amount of doctor time per patient. And reducing the amount of doctor time per patient means you take a lot of costs out of that interaction. So we could provide doctor visits to patients and patients would pay for them out of pocket. And that cost would often be less than their copay if they went to see a doctor in person. So, so that made us realize that there is really a model here where we could, we could grow by patients paying out of pocket, even though they're not using their insurance for it. Hmm. So they would pay to download the app, like they would pay the Apple App Store or whatever to download the app or, or on a per interaction basis? On a per interaction basis. So the app would be free to download and then the patient would, would pay essentially to have a doctor visit. It was a different sort of doctor visit experience, but it was a, a doctor visit uh, using the mobile app. And how did you find the doctors to, to do the visits? Were these people who had extra time on their hands or, you know, the Uber driver, you know, analogy is like, you got to find the people who want to ride to the airport, but you also have to find the people willing to give the ride to the airport. And it's like the two-sided market. So where did you get the doctors from? So we made the early decision to recruit doctors full-time to work at Lemonade really? rather than using doctors to do this as a, as a sort of part-time or, or, or when they had time off. The reason for that was a couple of things. The, the first thing that was really important to me when we were setting up Lemonade was 
I wanted to create a healthcare experience that wowed. And we talk about a wowing a lot at Lemonade. So when was the last time, John, you went to the doctor and you left saying, wow, that was amazing. I'm going to leave a five-star review. Um, <laughs> it's never I, an answer. <laughs> I think it doesn't happen very often. Um, whether you're in the UK or the US, or I'm guessing Canada as well. Um, but we do that in other parts of our lives. And there's no reason why we shouldn't be able to provide an amazing wow consumer experience in healthcare. So in order to do that, we really wanted to have control of the full stack within Lemonade. So we wanted to control the way the customer service was handled. We wanted to control all the technology. We wanted to control the, the, the clinical experience from the um, from the doctors and nurse practitioners that, that we recruited. So, um, But how did you get doctors? Because like, the doctors I know, they love patients, in particular, interacting with patients. They love complexity. They love different challenges. Cranking out like birth control pill scripts is not any definition of a doctor's like, like the reason they became a doctor. Tell me more about how you recruited these people because that fascinates me. Because again, am I wrong to think it was a tough sell to get doctors to join to do what, in their view, would probably be relatively simple diagnoses? Maybe I'm mis misunderstanding. I think it's important to get the right sort of doctor. And I think when you have the right sort of doctor, you, you, can, you can create a role that does have challenges and excitement and patient interaction. So one, one example is that in traditional healthcare, doctors spend the same amount of time with every patient, irrespective of what they're coming in for, whether they're coming in for a cold or whether they're a complicated patient with lots of um, significant medical history. One of the beauties of digital healthcare is doctors can spend less time on patients who are otherwise other, completely healthy and just getting a renewal for their birth control, and more time calling or having a video interaction on patients that have more complicated challenges. So the doctors still yeah. had patient interactions. And I think in some ways, those interactions with the patients were more rewarding because they were less rushed because they could spend more time with the patients that needed it. And I think the many doctors join, become doctors to um, have an impact on as many patients as they can and, and uh, have an impact on, on, the, on the healthcare system. And I think uh, digital technology can allow doctors to do that at a scale that they could not do in a traditional healthcare practice. That's really interesting, right? Like if you've figured out that when you're meeting with them face-to-face, -face, you can spend exactly 21.3 minutes with each customer to do their physical, you're doing it the same with an 18-year-old who's super healthy to the same, like a 65-year-old who may have complicated needs. And that's just obviously not delivering great service to the latter and probably more than good service to the former. So being able to be able to like stretch like an accordion, how much time you spend with a patient, I think that's a really compelling pitch. I get why people would join, doctors in particular would join, uh, given that luxury or that ability. It's cool. Yeah. Hadn't thought of it that way. So it all sounds amazing, also expensive. <laughs> the technology's that expensive, hiring full-time doctors is that expensive. So how did you finance the growth of Lemonade? Uh, we were fortunate to raise about 60 million in total before we got acquired. So started off 
initially with some financing from the founders we talked about earlier. Yep. We raised a, a seed round, uh, mostly from people that we knew in the UK, some people who had invested in Ian's business previously. And one of the real challenges that we experienced was we really didn't know many people in Silicon Valley. So I had this childhood dream of moving to Silicon Valley and setting a business up in Silicon Valley, but I, I was naive in so many ways. And, and certainly one of those ways was you don't just go to Sand Hill Road and knock on doors and uh, <laughs> people give you money for your business. That's, that's certainly far from my experience of, of, of how it works. So, uh, so fundraising was really difficult for us and we ran out of money a couple of times. I think there was one time where we couldn't pay, pay, pay our team. We had to pay everyone half a salary for, for a while. And, um, and, and it was really, really fundraising was really very difficult. This was also, um, as you pointed out, this was also in the early days of telehealth. So, we were coming along and saying direct consumer healthcare is going to be a thing. We're going to build digital experiences and we're going to engage directly with patients. And people were really skeptical of that, very, very skeptical. And it was difficult to persuade investors and, and others of, of this vision that we had. And, um, and it was really only until COVID came about when suddenly I think that mindset really shifted. I think. Mm. COVID probably accelerated digital healthcare adoption by about 10 years. And I think opened up a lot of opportunities for us. But, but up until then, it was really certainly a slog. And just orient me on the timeline. Uh, you raised a total of 60 million plus. Uh, you had a seed round, an A and a B, I'm aware of, maybe even a C round if I'm not mistaken, or maybe, maybe that was the acquisition. But like, where did COVID happen in your fundraising cycle? Was it after the A, before the B? Just describe that. Uh, the fundraising happened very shortly. Oh, sorry. COVID happened um, uh, shortly before the B round. So we raised the seed round. We, we, I think we raised an extension to the seed round because we were struggling to raise an A round. We, we raised an A round, put some uh, fantastic US-based investors on. And, and I think that really was... For us to trigger to professionalize in certain areas. Then during COVID, COVID hit, and during COVID, we raised our B round actually without meeting any of the investors who ended up investing in person because of the um, the, the challenges associated with fundraising during COVID. And um, and then shortly after that, as COVID was continuing, we were seeing continued uh, growth and, and we're getting a lot of interest. And um, that was really the start of where the acquisition ultimately happened. And talk to me about the structure of the investments to the extent that you, you feel comfortable. Um, were, were these kind of straight, were, the, were these options or, 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 or preferred shares or was it convertible debt? Like what was the, what was the structure of the uh, the raise that you did, maybe talk seed and then and then more professional rounds of A and B. Yeah, so we 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 did a combination of some convertible notes, convertible notes in the earlier days, and uh, just the, describe what you mean by a convertible note for people who may not be familiar with that term. So I think the benefit of a convertible note is you're not pricing or valuing the business at the point the convertible note is being issued. You're you're instead. So take, taking on capital 
at an agreed upon discount to the next um, fundraising price. So that enabled us to raise money a little bit more quickly from investors who are perhaps not, it's not their full-time job that they're not, they don't feel comfortable themselves valuing our business. And, and that, that then meant that when we raised um, institutional capital in the future, those convertible notes converted into that equity as yeah. series A round was a, a preferred equity financing round as, as was our uh, series B round. Okay. And for my listeners, when, when Paul refers to a convertible note, he's referring to basically loaning the company, correct if I'm wrong, Paul, money, uh, and that then can be converted into equity at, uh, when there is a professional investor that's brought in, usually a, a, an A round. The value is placed on the, the business by the professional investor who does that, does their due diligence, understands the TAM and so forth. And then the original note holders convert their debt. Uh, into equity at that at that valuation or some discount to that valuation in return for being an early sort of uh, backer of the company. Am I getting that roughly right, Paul? That's how exactly how it worked for us. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So you had these convertible notes, uh, and then the the, the preferred uh, equity. Just describe preferred equity so that the investors, as I understand it, are effectively on, upon an liquidity event are entitled to get their money back, sometimes at a multiple of their money, before the common shareholders, i.e. Paul and Ian and others, get their their money. Is, is that how a preferred round works? It, it is, I think, John, yes. Yeah. So, so, and I think the rationale, as I understand it, is, you know, the, these investors are coming in and, and, and putting trust in you and, and putting their money in you. And, and if, if you, you as the, the founding team and, and the employees, you're incentivized to do as well as you possibly can, because if there's a, there's a big return, which is higher than the valuation or the amount of money that's gone into the company, then everyone um, largely proportionately gets that outcome. But if for some reason things don't go well and, and you sell for something less than the valuation or um, the valuation of the money that's gone in, then uh, the investors get their money back first, or, or as you said, either their money back plus some more of it before anyone else sees any of it. So um, that's certainly something I, uh, much of financing, I had had no experience of, and, and something that um, is obviously really important, and, and I'd spend a lot of time thinking about going forward. And did, and again, if you can't share, totally understand, but but if you can, what did the uh, investors have like a multiple liquidity prep. Was it like a two x liquidity preference, or is it just they they basically get the money they invested out first? I can't actually remember the exact um, okay. the exact term, but but there was there was some sort of stack as it was where where um, the investors would get their money back in the event that that an exit is not um, is not a positive event for everyone. <laughs> Right, but they would also get the they would be first money out in the event of a big and successful exit. They would get their money out first and then share in a commensurate proportion to their stockholdings on the the upside. If that makes sense, am I getting that right? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Interestingly, I, I'd be curious to know about the currency and the 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 uh, the, the the types of consideration. So, obviously, when a company sells. 
there sometimes cash exchanges hands other times it's uh shares those are usually the, the kind of most common i guess forms of consideration how is is it contemplated when an investor comes in are they getting only cash out or if, if you get bought for a combination of shares plus uh, cash do they have to sort of accept that combination that the the uh, common stockholders have to accept or is that open for negotiation or is it do you know what i'm getting at yeah absolutely i i think one of the things one of the many things i learned during the process is so much of this probably almost all of it is open to negotiation so okay. um i think you know and one of the things as I went through that experience, sort of being the front person of the negotiation, I was really conscious that um, there's a lot of parties involved. So, so there's um, there's the company, there's there's us as the founders, there's the employees, there's the investors, and the early the early stage investors perhaps will have a different perspective to the later stage investors, and and and, and different different pools on on what's important. So. So I think you know much of that is up to negotiation. I think one of the things that we tried to do that I think we would try to do again in the future is is really to make sure it was equitable across all investors. So so investors we were not giving special treatment to certain groups of investors. You know the the, the high level terms we agreed were consistent across the board. Even though some investors had been with you a lot longer than others, did you? Yeah, and I suppose they would. Tenure? They would benefit from the higher return because they invested money at a lower valuation. So, I see. Um, but in terms of the sort of high level concept, so um, we were acquired by Twenty Three Me for four hundred million dollars, and it was a combination of stock and cash, and um, that was replicated across our, our investor set. Yeah, that makes that makes good sense. So let's get into that now. So the the business thrives, in particular during COVID, for obvious reasons. People needed medical attention, but couldn't leave their homes in many cases. So um, you're raising money. At what point did that change from raising money to being acquired? Was there some sort of triggering event? Did you and Ian have a heart to heart and like how how did that all come about so i think from a macro perspective for us the triggering event was the pandemic really so mm. i mentioned i think covid really accelerated digital healthcare adoption which was fantastic for patients and i think that uh that opened up a few opportunities for us we really saw the potential of lemonade in a way that um we had always hoped that we might see but 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 hadn't, hadn't yet realized and and that sort of presented us with three options. I think the first option was to raise a Series C financing round to continue the, the growth and capitalize on what we were doing to raise more capital. I think the second option that that came about that that was uh, around in 2021, but I think less uh, less so now, was um, potentially going public via SPAC. So mm-hmm. um, that that was at that point when the markets were really healthy. That that was an option we were considering as well. Or the third option was, was there an acquisition that we might consider where there was a really great strategic fit? So the next phase of Lemonade could be part of another another team. And we'd explored a couple of those in the past and both times they 
fell fell apart and um so we had a little bit of experience there but but certainly we were really open to it and um i think um i think for us you know we were open to all three of those paths and and i had many discussions with uh our board of course ian and i my advisors and mentors and and pursued all three in parallel and ultimately became very excited about the opportunity at 23 and me that came about how did that come about so i was looking back and i think i first met Anne, the founder and ceo of 23 and me in june 2021 and it came about because um the investment bank that 23 and me has used previously i also had a relationship with and i got a call from them and they said um paul 23 me is considering an acquisition in the telehealth space and we'd like to suggest you as a candidate would you be open to the conversation and to be honest i it wasn't immediately obvious to me why there was a good fit between a genetics testing company and a, a digital healthcare provider but i was really excited to meet Anne and learn more and and really the first meeting that i had with Anne, i was immediately sold on this vision and idea of combining genetics and healthcare to create a really personalized healthcare experience one of the things that i've always been frustrated about in healthcare is we treat everyone as the average of the us population so john your blood pressure target should be 120 over 80 mine should be 120 over 80 when you turn 50 you should do this specific thing when i turn 50 that's of course rubbish that just is the average person should be doing that but you based on your genetics your family history your lifestyle choices should be doing things maybe at 45 or maybe other things at 50 that are maybe more relevant to you because you have higher risk factors with because with, of my uh, genetics because of your genetics and also your lifestyle choices and your your family history but genetics plays the most significant role hmm. so i was so excited by this idea of the next the next implementation of lemonade being really part of genetics founded personalized healthcare and that was a vision that Anne had and we met first i think in june 2021 and and the deal was closed in november 2021 Wow. Well, tell me how it goes from her vision of this merger of genetics and telehealth or personalized healthcare to an acquisition conversation. I mean, the the investment bank had raised the specter you met. Um obviously you were interested in in that that combination. Just for clarity, the investment bank had was representing 23 and me. They weren't your investment bank. They were effectively a buy side investment bank looking to acquire in a company on behalf of 23 and me. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. They weren't representing us. I don't know if they were representing 23 and me at that time or they were just making the connection, but they okay. they had a closer relationship with 23 and me. Okay. So and sells you this big vision like look think about what we could do together. Then what? I think that the start of these conversations are always quite interesting. I um because you neither of you really sort of explicitly say, "Hey, well, do you want to buy us?" or "Hey, can we buy you?" 
so you're, you're sort of navigating the conversations like with a huge amount of excitement, but trying to really understand what's the other person's perspective. And, and from our point of view, at that point, we were really open to a wide range of discussions. We were open to a partnership discussion, maybe some investment or, or, or an acquisition. So um, Anne and I met a number of times after that. And I, and I think um, started having the conversations that Lemonade becoming part of 23andMe could really allow us to do some extremely exciting things together. And that was when we started to bring in our wider teams. And I think it became quite clear that, that the focus, at least initially, should be on whether we can come to an agreement for Lemonade to become part of 23andMe. And, um, and, and certainly that, you know, those conversations were extremely exciting, very, um, really identified, I think, some of the strength that Lemonade could bring to 23andMe. One of the things that was important to me early on was that the whole of the Lemonade team would, would retain roles and become part of 23andMe. And I think that was something that Anne and I talked about in the early days. So, um, had you had like, I mean, you you'd gone through these rounds of financing, so you had a sense of what the market thought the company was worth, at least at the Series B. How how did the market value your company? Again, this is before meeting with Anne, uh, like on a multiple of revenue, or like how, what was their methodology and what 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 was their ultimate valuation of the company? So we were as we were a venture back company, we. Um, uh, we, you know, we really were optimizing for growth during COVID. After our Series A round for a period, we were we were actually profitable. We got the business to profitability. But then when we raised our Series B round, we really wanted to invest in growth, particularly coinciding with COVID and really felt like that was adding the most value to Lemonade by really investing. So we were we were burning money. So so we weren't a company that you could value on a, on an EBITDA multiple. So so from a from a sort of macro perspective, I think the company was valued on a revenue multiple, looking at um, comparisons both in the public space and and, and the private space, uh, and ultimately that valuation was agreed to be four hundred million. From our perspective internally, the other factor that we also considered was what was the valuations that we had raised money at in the prior rounds both the Series B round, which was only a little while before the acquisition, but then the prior rounds as well. I think one of the things you know, that I will be eternally grateful for is the investors, particularly the early stage investors that took a real risk in us and saw us through really some of the, some very, very tough times and um, stood there by us. Uh, and you know, Ian and I wanted to make sure that those investors saw a good return. Uh, in the acquisition. Did you have a, a hurdle rate that you wanted to achieve for them? I don't know that we thought about it quite like that, but I think perhaps in hindsight, maybe maybe we should have done or, or, or I would do going forward. I think, you know, I had, I remember some of the first conversations that I had with those earlier investors sort of saying, it looks like this is, this is what, what's going to be on the table. Um, how would you feel about that? And and I, what I realize now is whenever you say that to an investor, you're only going to get one response, which is, well, couldn't it be $200,000 more? Um, and uh, so, so I, I, I perhaps phrase it differently in the future. But, but I think, you know, I, uh, 
I felt like, I think as an entrepreneur, you always look back and think, well, could we have made it even bigger? Could we have had an even bigger impact? Could we have sold for more than a billion dollars if we had done this or done that? And, and I think, you know, I've spent a lot of time since the acquisition really reflecting on things. And I, I really feel like the, um, we were able to get a, a, a good return for our investors, uh, especially considering the time that the investment had been in. And especially considering some of the real challenges that we had experienced during that roller coaster, there were certainly times when we thought we were going to have to shut the business down. I remember a specific time where Ian and I were w- walked out of the office in San Francisco to go and grab a coffee and we walked to the park and we sat down. And we both said to each other, you know, I think we're going to have to shut this down. And um, that was, um, you know, it makes me shiver now still. You know, that was, those, those were, those were the sorts of times that we went through. And I think on reflection, you know, being able to get our investors a, a, a good return and um, lemonade landing in a place which really is now incorporating lemonade into the strategy going forward is, is, is a great outcome for us. What, what preceded the conversation in the park with you and Ian? We, we were hoping to raise money. We, we had got pretty close to raising money from a, a, a big VC, well-known VC, and we had been in some pretty extended diligence with them. And we were pretty, we were, again, I think we were very naive. We, we didn't have a term sheet. We were pretty, uh, but we were pretty optimistic. We were hearing good news. We've met them many times. And um, we ended up getting a call from them saying, hey, we're going to invest in a competitor that's just popped up, uh, a new competitor that's just popped up. And that started some tricky conversations with our existing investors, some of whom we told, you know, hey, we're feeling pretty optimistic about this. Um, And uh, we asked our existing investors for for loans to keep the business going and it was just, it's just amazing how they really stood up and helped us um, because many of these investors were just angel investors, early stage angel investors who had full-time jobs and you know they weren't expecting to be investing more and more in this um, crazy startup in San Francisco. And um, But we kept, got to the point ultimately where we, we'd taken those loans and we were going to now struggle to pay our employees and we had a little bit of money and we could give some money back to investors and you know should we do that or should we should we keep fighting and it's you know um it it, it was tough it's t- it's tiring it's stressful it's all-encompassing it, it takes over your life and um you know we um yeah that, that was one of the moments that was really sort of pretty pivotal and i know ian and i you know we said we're going to we're going to figure out how to do this. We're going to, we're going to make it work and, um, you know, lots of luck. Um, and somehow we were able to. As, as you went through COVID and you started to, to have these conversations with, Anne, what was, where was your head out vis-a-vis getting a return for your investors? I guess I'm, I'm curious, you know, a lot of people listening to this show would have, would have, chosen to own a hundred percent of a small pie they'd have given the thought to like would you rather own a small slice of a big pie or a big slice big slice or all of a small pie and i think a lot of our listeners not all but a lot would have opted for i would prefer to own a hundred percent of a small pie 
And as I hear you describing your conversation, your your sense of obligation, I think, to these investors who invested you at this difficult time, this time of need, it almost sounds, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, it almost sounds like your motivation became keeping them whole, honoring their belief in you rather than Paul and Ian making off like bandits because it was your idea and you put all the sweat equity. Like it sounds to me like your motivations became more about about honoring them than than enriching yourself. I don't mean enriching in a pejorative way. I just mean most entrepreneurs, they want to have a big liquidity event because they want to make some money. Uh, it sounds like in your case, it changed. I want to just pressure test that idea. Do you do you agree with my analysis or or am I picking up on something that's not there? I think I agree with your analysis. And I would add to it the other thing that we spent a lot of time talking about and I continue to be grateful for. And, and certainly post-acquisition, I also spend a lot of time thinking about is our employees and the amazing team that we built up, especially the early stage team, especially those people who stuck with us when we couldn't pay them or we were late paying them by a few days because we needed to figure out some way to get a little bit more money in the bank. So certainly I felt, yeah, an obligation or, or a, you know, I felt, I felt like it was really important to me to reward our investors who stuck by us because they really, they really stood up when we needed them. And the fantastic team that we built that, you know, that, that contributed to, I think, evolving how healthcare was provided. And, and I think, you know, in many ways, I think about COVID, you know, we were, in many ways, we were fortunate to be, to be in the right place at the right time. And uh, I felt a duty that we should realize that. We realize that fortune by um, helping Lemonade become what it can be in the future. So making sure it lands in the right place and uh, rewarding our investors and employees. And, and for our employees, that meant making sure that the deal, you know, they, they got to see some part of the, the deal compensation, but also that they landed in, in a place where going forward, they would have a new role and new opportunities and uh, if they wanted it. And, and that was really important to us as well. So let's get into the transaction itself. So Anne, you and Anne have what are some, some really good conversations about the possible marriage? Who, who's the first to, to raise the specter of valuation? I mean, did she kind of put an LOI in front of you? Or did you say, look, I need, to, I need it to be X uh, valuation? Like, how did that come about? Uh, so I think we, we, start, we started then conversations with a broader team where we, built, we brought in our finance team and, uh, to, to work with the 23andMe finance team. And then the legal team started talking. And, and I think um, I don't remember who put the first number out. I do remember us, you know, as sort of I think any any good negotiator or trying to avoid being the ones to put the number out first. And I think you know the other side trying to encourage you to put the number out first. So uh, I, I certainly remember us um, trying to avoid doing that. But um, uh, the I think a key thing for us as well as the the price that we negotiated, which was uh, the 400 million, was how much was cash and how much was stock? And then is there any sort of milestones or earn out payments? And we spent a lot of time talking about that, negotiating that deal structure. 
before we really got into the negotiation of all the legal documents that hmm. that was of course a lot as well how were you thinking about those issues uh currency and uh, earnout so i think that i think everyone wants more cash so so you're certainly our our objective at that point was to get as much cash as possible but um conversely i i think you know, we recognized 23andMe's position in that they had recently gone public and had a lot of exciting ambition and and plans for the future. So had other ways that they wanted to make use of their cash as well. So we were open to some element of, of stock. One thing that we held quite firm on and was important to us was that there shouldn't be any milestone or any... Um, any sort of revenue or other milestone associated payments. And what Ian and I was important for Ian and I was that our investors would get all of their, or, or at least all minus any escrow, um, when the, when the deal completed, Ian and I accepted an earnout component, but that earnout was exclusively time based rather than hitting certain milestones. Um, and we, we did that because we felt like we would be giving away some control of Lemonade when it became part of 23andMe. And we might not have full influence over its ability to continue to grow or grow even, even more rapidly. And, and so milestone payments attached to hitting certain APIs or, or other targets was something that we wanted to try and avoid. What was 23andMe's reaction to the idea of a 10-year-based earnout versus a milestone-based one? That was where we that was where we ended, and and I think like any good negotiation, I think you then negotiate the duration of that of that um, earnout and um, how frequently things are paid within that within that earnout. So so you know the, the negotiation was definitely tough, and I think one of the things that I learned looking back was um, there's always there's always more beneath the surface. So so I sort of. You know, I remember joking with our legal team, like, gosh, this just feels like an iceberg. You think you've agreed the particular um, disagreement that you have. You think you've come to a, to a resolution, but then actually there's all of these additional complexities associated with that. So, and I think the earnout is an example of that. You know, we, I, I thought, wow, fantastic. We've agreed a time-based earnout and, and the legal team will say, yes, but Paul, is it 10 years? Is it two years? Is it what happens if, Things happen during that period, like um, when are you getting, how are you getting paid? When are you getting paid? So um, certainly there's uh, having a great legal team around you to guide you through when those complexities continue to spiral. Um, how long did you guys do an earn out for? If you, are you able to share like the, the tenure you guys agreed to? I don't think we've announced that publicly. Okay, no problem. When it comes to the currency, I'm... I'm particularly curious, and this is why I was asking you earlier about the preferred shares uh, that the Series A and B investors received or acquired or whatever. Um, as I understand the deal, total valuation, $400 million, uh, 125% cash, 75% in stock. Were the... Investors required to effectively accept the same deal. Like, did they say, okay, for every dollar of cash I'm getting, I'm getting three dollars of 
23andMe equity? Were, were they sort of required to uh, agree to the same sort of basic proportions? Is, can, can you share anything there? Yes. Yeah, so, so largely that, that was the case. Yeah. So, and I think this sort of touches on really something that I feel like I learned, which was as the person sort of at the forefront of the, the negotiations, I really had to be conscious about the, the, the different perspectives and parties on, on both sides, but including our side, our side. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, one thing that I, that I tried to do and going, you know, in a similar situation in the future, I think it would do even more of it is just really making sure that those different groups of investors were really able to provide input at every stage of the, of the process to make sure that we were. Uh, negotiating a deal that really worked for everyone. And, and I think, you know, our, our investors feel like, felt like we did that. And, uh, and, and largely the terms that we negotiated were consistent across all investors, uh, with the exception of Ian and I, where we had some held back in the net Got it. And then what's the liquidity of the shares that you accept? Usually there's a kind of a hold. A whole, I don't know, a whole period or something like that, where there's like, you know, we're going to give you stock, which you cannot sell for a period of X number of months or years. Did did you have to sort of have some sort of holdback? Can you can you share anything there? There was so there was a, a lockup period associated lockup. with the shares that 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 were granted. So um, on the the day of closing, although all investors. Uh, were granted the shares, they weren't able to sell them until a, a certain amount of time after that, a number of months after that. And uh, so that was, again, something that we spent a lot of time talking to the investors about because uh, I think, you know, as an investor, you you often think like, oh, companies selling, I immediately have access to that liquidity. And that was not the case with the, the share component. And again, I'm asking because I'm, I'm just curious to know when you raise money whether the, the deal terms have to be the same. I think you, you alluded to the fact that you know everything's up for negotiation. But when it came to your lockup period, does it have to be identical to the other non-operating investors, like i.e. the the investors in the B or A round would, were were their lockup periods and your lockup periods legally have to be identical or, or, or could you, did you have a different lockup period than they have as investors? I'm not sure, John. I think it depends why, I think it depends on the legality of what the lockup, the, the reason for the lockup period is. I think in our situation, there were two things in play. There was the, the, the natural lockup that you often have after an acquisition, but, but 23andMe had recently gone public, which I think contributed to the, the lockup period as well. So, I think um, in our case, the uh, we had the same. Uh, all investors had the same uh, timelines associated with not being able to sell the shares that we got as part of the uh, investment. Uh, and this would be a matter of months, not years, though, right? Or yeah, right? this was this was um, less than a year. Yeah, I can't remember the exact timelines, but it was uh, it was months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. It's um, it's it's fascinating. Not many of our listeners are acquired by public companies. So forgive me for all of the kind of detailed questions, but I do find it curious to hear some of the, the idiosyncrasies and nuances of selling to a public company where the shares are sort of available on a public stock exchange. Um, are you up for a quick lightning round before I let you go? And well, uh, with a couple to. of final questions. Okay. Um, you mentioned there were two deals that fell apart. So I'm guessing you might have an answer to this question. What was the slimiest trick 
an acquirer tried to play on you in the process of selling your company? Well, um, you could be, you know, you could expand that to investor as well, because clearly so you met quite a I think in one of the earlier acquisition discussions, um, I think that the group we were talking to held back some of the most important things to discuss, purposely delayed some of the more important things to discuss until the end. Such as? Um, so I think things associated with how to handle employees, how to handle um, stock that hasn't vested yet, that, that I think um, you know, from our perspective, I think, as you perhaps pointed out earlier, really important for for us. And and I think, you know, I as as I've sort of learned more, reflected on it, appreciate it, you know, that it can be a it can be a uh, a useful sales technique to you know get you over the line and then sort of hit you with a few other things at the end. But that didn't feel um, that felt that felt a little bit dirty in that situation. In, in retrospect, you, you've come to realize that they were holding out on those sensitive topics. Until you were a little more committed to the deal, and then kind of raise so, the yeah. factor of yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the biggest mistake you personally made during the process of selling your company? I mean, it sounds like a wonderful outcome, but there must have been one mulligan you'd like to have a do-over on, or you know, be able to try again. I think that I would have spent more time talking with our team about how exciting this opportunity was. And I would have done that in person. So we had the challenge that much of this was happening during COVID. And I think that a mistake that I made was I felt all of this excitement, strategic excitement, because I was feeding off of Anne's excitement. And we were sort of riffing together and coming up with these amazing opportunities. And then I think when it came to the point to communicate it to the team. And we did it as a sort of all hands video call. I really wish that I had got everyone together in person, you know, probably outside given COVID and, and just really spent much more time um, both talking, getting their feedback perspectives, but celebrating what they had achieved and thanking them for everything that they had done for Lemonade. So I, I wish that I had spent more time doing that. I think what what I what I what happened was it was such I thought it was going to be, hey, we signed these documents, this is done, like cool, take a breath. Like, <laughs> but that was absolutely not what happened because um I had a new role within 23 and me that I needed to to get going on. And there were all of these sort of post-closing things that needed to get tidied up. And I wanted to really Focus on making a lemonade lemonade a success within twenty three and me. So, I, I I didn't make time for that, and I really regret that. Isn't that interesting? And great feedback. It's something that uh, we've heard again and again. Is is that telling employees, in your case, celebrating with employees, is the one thing people wished they could have a do over on? Because of course, there's in the the last minutes of a negotiation, the final days. I mean, oftentimes people are pulling all nighters, and it's just such an emotionally exhausting and draining process that you finally get over the line. And you're like, okay, now we got to tell everybody, and like, it's you've got no energy left to to share the excitement of what people have achieved. I, I think that's a really Really good, uh, really good point. I'm glad you shared it. What was the and, and lowest if, point? Go ahead. No, sorry. I was just going to say, I think what you said really resonates. It almost feels like, to me, it was 
checking the box that I've told the team rather than because I, I think I was exhausted, I was tired, I hadn't slept, rather than what I really deep down felt was I really wanted the team. I really wanted that opportunity to talk to the team and make them feel engaged and excited and, and appreciated. And, and I didn't do that well enough. Well said. What was the lowest ebb you reached emotionally during the process of selling? I think the every day something new came up for, for some period of time. And uh, on Monday, you think, oh, the deal's going to happen. And we've, we've figured this out and we both agreed on this. And then on Tuesday, something else comes up that, that sort of says, hey, the deal's off. The deal's not going to happen. And um, just that general up and down, I, I remember there was, there was one point where I just couldn't see a path forward, where 23andMe had a very strong view. Our investors had a very strong view. Um, I had a very strong different view. And, and I just didn't see a path forward. And um, I really felt like the, we weren't going to reach agreement and the deal was up. And, and uh, I think, you know, what, what I realized then, or sort of the additional stress that that caused was because we were so far down this path, we hadn't been pursuing the other paths of raising a Series C financing or the other options that existed. So we would really have set ourselves back six months in those, in, 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 in that process. So I was really, I was sort of playing that out in my mind and really realizing like this is difficult. Um, one of the other challenges that I had was Ian had uh, relocated during COVID back to the UK. So Ian was on a different time zone. And I think, um, you know, that, that meant a lot of early mornings for me and a lot of late nights for him. But, but it also meant that we weren't able to spend as much time together as we would have done uh, if we were um, closer. So, um, so that was definitely tough. I remember there was definitely a moment where I really was, I, I think I may have said that, you know, I feel like we're 99%, this is not going to happen now. And, um, uh, but then somehow, you know, something, you know, we got a little bit of a breakthrough and, and uh, it you, are you able to share what was the deal point that you were logging? I don't think I, I don't think I can share, but I think it, rela okay. it relates to broadly relates to, and I found this actually quite a lot, a lot of the time, we were spending talking about things that might happen in the future, mm. but the likelihood of them happening was very low, but it was still very important because if those things did happen, they could be a significant impact or liability for 23andMe or, or our shareholders. So I think it related to some negotiations on that. The tough one usually comes with reps and warranties. It's that's where they all, the, all the little, uh, little details start to emerge and, yeah. and that's oftentimes tough. So, uh, what was the highest point emotionally that you reached during the sale? I think the highest point was when our lawyers emailed me saying, Paul, can I release your signature from escrow to sign the deal? And I got that email very late at night. I think it was maybe 1130 or midnight um, at night. This was probably after a few thinking it was going to happen for the sort of preceding few days. And um, I, I remember my, my wife went and got us a couple of um, glasses to have a quick drink to celebrate. And I wrote the email and sent it back. And, and that just felt like, you know, not just um, 
great that that we sort of navigated this tough negotiation and I think landed at a place that worked really well for, for everyone. Um, but it was also sort of eight years of, of a real up and down and um, helping a lot of patients, but but having to navigate some really tough times. So that that was definitely the high. It was, I remember it being short lived because I was so tired, I went straight to sleep. And then the next morning I realized, um, I think I had to wake up at 3 a.m. the next morning because we had a sort of communication plan to that we wanted to to roll out and um press releases going out and things like that so um and then you have that period between signing and closing where you have to do certain things so then i could you know really focus on getting those things done so we could close um and uh and then it was a whirlwind after that so so i think it was short-lived but it was definitely enjoyed um for that moment i bet i bet um as you kind of prepared this for this process like how did you educate yourself about about going through an exit i mean was there was there a book or a course or a, like a particular advisor you leaned on heavily or how did you get sort of educated about this process so i was lucky to have quite a few advisors during the time at lemonade and i think one of the things that i wish i had done sooner is i joined a ceo coaching group so as well as having a ceo coach i also became part of a group with seven other CEOs who were going through or had gone through similar like situations. Like a mastermind, peer-to-peer pure, pure board kind of thing? Exactly, yeah. And yeah. I think importantly, that group was largely or entirely impartial. So they weren't investors. They weren't on my board. They weren't you know, my best friend or my family. They were, they were people who were genuinely impartial. And so I lent on many of those during the process and um, was able to talk to a number of our board directors, some of my other mentors and advisors. And, uh, and, I, and I, I think one of the things that I am grateful for is that we had, asked, we had the same corporate attorney from the very early days. So the corporate mm-hmm. attorney at Fenwick who created our uh, documents to found the company uh, nine years ago was the same corporate attorney that saw us through the acquisition process, which which just was was great because not only did they have the history, but we also had this working relationship and you knew how each other liked to work. So so that was very helpful as well. Got it. And tell me there was a trophy you bought yourself to commemorate this win. Something physical, something that you bought that uh Reminds you, know, you of, I, the, of the sale. So we bought all of our investors a that, that sort of typical sort of acquisition trophy um, and and sent that out and uh, along with some lemon branded swag. So um, so cer- certainly did that. Um, but but beyond that, I haven't haven't done anything. You haven't done anything? No. <laughs> Paul, are you still married? <laughs> yeah. Yes, of course. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, well, I hope you do invest in something to celebrate the win. I'm a big believer in something physical. I love the reward that you gave your investors. Just describe it physically. It's a like a like a tombstone of the acquisition. Yeah, like the tombstone sort of trophy. Yeah, yeah. And and so um, yeah, my wife and I have been on some um, some great trips, great vacations oh. since. So oh, I there think you that, go. You're holding that for up. us was the uh, those experiences with us. What was your favorite? What was your favorite? Um, my favorite my favorite vacation spot is Hawaii, and nice. um, uh, I think that would be right at the top of the list for me. 
Nice. I've never, I've never been, but I hear it's beautiful. The time zones scare me off from Toronto to Hawaii. I'm like, it's like, I'm going to be like nine time zones away, but from you in California, it's probably easier. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's beautiful and relaxing and just yes, wonderful culture. Well, you deserve it. Where can people reach out to you? First of all, if they want to learn more about lemonade and the virtual uh, medical care that you provide and 23andMe, is there a website we can point people to? Yeah, definitely. Lemonade.com or LemonadeHealth.com or certainly happy for um, anyone to reach out to me directly on on LinkedIn or otherwise. But um, yeah, I think the 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 future the personalized healthcare i think is a really exciting opportunity going forward yeah you've got my mind spinning on the kind of like the merger of genetics and personalized healthcare so i think it's a really cool space we will put your linkedin profile uh in the show notes at builtthecell.com uh paul thanks for doing this john i really enjoyed it thank you so much for having me on thanks for creating such a great podcast uh not at all And there you have it for today's episode between John and Paul. If you enjoyed today's episode, then be sure you hit that subscribe button. If you loved today's episode and want to help support the show, then I would encourage you to either head over to Apple Podcasts, where there you can leave a rating and review, or sharing this out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would truly enjoy listening to today's show. A quick reminder, you can watch this full interview over at our YouTube channel. Head over to YouTube, type in at Built to Sell Radio, and there you'll have the chance to watch today's full interview. If you know of someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the show with John, you can actually nominate them by heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate. There you'll have the chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including the number of definitions, then be sure to head over to our show notes page, which can be found at builttosell.com. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week.